Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 65 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Joe Makowitz, professor of rhetoric and professional communication at Iowa State University and editor of Journal of Business and Technical Communication. Her book, Welding Technical Communication, Teaching and Learning Embodied Knowledge, was published by SUNY Press this year. Sparks fly, sizzling sounds, a puddle of heat and light are drawn along two metal surfaces by thick-gloved hands and visor-shielded eyes. A fine balance of chemical mix, precision movement, and response to the materials being made into one. Welding. That's what you're hearing. That's what you're seeing here. The act of welding is the act of softening metals by heat in order to join these together in a solid mass. When you weld, you forge. And that's a great metaphor for what a teacher is doing with a learner's knowledge. The teacher makes ready, prepares what the learner knows or is just coming to understand, and then the teacher intervenes so as to join that knowledge to new learning happening right there in the moment. Teaching is a forging of what someone knows to what someone has yet to know. The result is solid, and it's a mass. The learner changes in their thinking as they change in their capacity to act. Joe Makowitz, today's guest and author of Welding Technical Communication, has put this metaphor of teaching as welding to the literal test. She took up the skilled trade of welding, and being the educator she is by profession, she paid very close attention to how she and everyone else in her courses was learning to practice the skill. At the start of her testing, Joe knew already about teaching and learning, especially as these acts are performed in higher education, but Joe knew really nothing about welding. And that's a fine place to start for a person who wants to research how teachers scaffold student learning, how verbal and nonverbal communication help advance a student's embodied knowledge, and how communities of practice in the skilled trades accept new members into their midst. Joe, in her book, tracks the gesticulations of a welding instructor while he describes the appearance of a student's weldman. Joe listens in for the crackling and the sizzling which an expert ear reports hearing off a weld in progress. Joe notes the choices of words the experienced welder uses to explain settings of arc length and wire speed. Sometimes Joe tells a joke or records quick wit heard emanating from a welding booth. Joe's attention to such details is highly valuable research. She contributes new findings from new environments to research into scaffolding, and she offers a wealth of ideas on how teachers can improve their teaching. Whether it's welding that's the subject, or plumbing, or anatomy, or music, or, for this reader for sure, whether the subject is writing. So let's begin today's episode, Joe Makowitz and Welding Technical Communication. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for that lovely introduction. That was amazing. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, The uh, title of your book starts with the word, of course, welding. Um, The image on the cover is of a welding teacher on the job, firing away. And you state your own personal reasons for beginning your years-long instruction in this uh, skilled trade. But really, your research here is into teaching and learning, just as the subtitle tells us. And so perhaps you might start us off uh, today with you know, your overall and sort of global findings, the things that you take away from your study in regard to teaching and learning of any subject matter in any setting. Yeah. Well, you know, I I had I've tried to examine uh, the process of scaffolded learning um, before in in other kind of larger scale studies, um, mostly in looking at the talk between writing tutors and writing students. And the idea behind this book was to sort of bridge these. Um, from a, from a personal point of view, to bridge 
you know, the work that I'd done in Writing Center Talk with my ongoing interest and studies in professional communication um, or technical communication more, more specifically. And so I was thinking about how does scaffolding go on um, in other settings? And and one thing that hadn't really been investigated very much, and this is changing a bit, but one arena that had not been studied is really in the skilled trades. There's just, we've focused in technical and professional communication on knowledge work, you know, uh, how uh, people who work behind computers um, you know, interact and the discourse that they use, um, how people in businesses interact and how do we communicate as managers or um, as employees and organizations. And really nobody had been looking at, um, or, you know, not many people had been looking at, you know, how, how people talk, the sorts of discourse that go on in skilled trades and then more specifically, how do people use language to teach and learn those skilled trades? So I started delving into that area um, at both, you know, kind of simultaneously with my own, um, with my own, uh, with, with entering into a, a welding program myself. Um, and so that's what the book studies is the idea of the scaffolding of learning. How do people learn something when that something resides in the body and not just in the mind? So that was the, the main point, I think, of the book. Yeah, and that I mean that comes out. It's also stated uh, very clearly uh, towards the close of your introduction. You you formulate this goal to demystify the learning process, to make transparent how teacher and student verbal and nonverbal communication, just as you've been telling us mm -hmm. now, intertwine to co-construct embodied knowledge. I'm, I'm quoting there, yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what I found interesting there is, is, is this goal is important to you, you say, because, well, it simply amazes you that anyone ever could learn how to weld yeah. <laughs> and now you have so congratulations there well, I don't know but i mean i'm that. sure you i don't know you know that's it's just this it's it's this whole path right um you know and i think you uh, well i cut off your question but you know like when do you really know it you know when do you know how to weld because all that that's what's so beautiful and mystifying about this process is these teachers through their verbal language through their gestures and we and I look at their demonstrations you know of various types you know through all these visual and verbal cues or or interventions um, with students they scaffold students along to a certain amount of progress towards expertise um toward expertise but not necessarily of course in a welding program attaining expertise and you could think too when these students go out and enter the workforce and their learning continues on the job in whatever sort of shop or factory um or whatever setting they're working in that movement, that scaffolding, whether it be through peers in their work or through, um, ma um, you know, uh, managers or, um, you know, sometimes they're called like team leaders um, or, or cell leaders within these um, larger factories. People are scaffolding you, your learning even on the job too. So anyway, this is just to say that I know I haven't attained expertise in welding by a long shot. I'm, I'm, I'm better than when I started. That is certain. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, you very much anticipate where where I was taking things, and this is also made. So it's also because it's so clear in the book. Um, this. 
this i i mean on perhaps one of the more abstract levels and i do want to get down to details as well because there's so many very interesting details that you provide in the book of the scaffolding process but on the more abstract level this amazement that you speak of about someone being able to learn how to weld and and you even seem to express it as you talk now about how you know moving out of a course and into the world of actual work and continuing to continuing to be uh, scaffolded is is just amazing that it works it's it's one of those i'm sure you would agree it's one of those things that anyone who has their heart in education is amazed by um, you know, whether it's learning to fly a plane, uh, learning how to um, perform a, procedure, uh, a surgical procedure or to, to write a research article to get closer to our composition backgrounds, uh, it's, just, it's just amazing that it works. And I suppose this is one of those things that you, with your experience in research, could, could probably have something to say about. What is it that the the teacher in the broadest sense, even the mentor who picks up somebody when they've entered the workforce, uh, or as in science, mentors are almost everything. So much is done in science through mentorship. Um, what is it that they're providing to change the learning process? Because a learning process, since it's tied to experience, can only be accelerated to a certain point. Doesn't it have to be lived to another point? Yeah, 100%. I mean, and that's what... What the teacher can do is, and and I talk about these different um, components of the scaffolding process in the book, and the book's sort of organized around them in a way, um, especially in the conclusion. But, you know, what the teacher does or why teachers are important or um, why you know, experts or more expert people, or one might say in the words of like Lave and Wenger is um, an old timer, you know, as opposed to a newcomer into, into the profession or into the trade. Um, what the teacher does is sort of diagnose the, the state or the level of the student's knowledge, the current knowledge, and creates what another term um, is inter- subjectivity about, okay, what are we going to do here? What is the task at hand to come to this shared understanding of what we're doing to make sure the student under uh, understands that, to diagnose um, that student's level, current level of understanding, and then to intervene at that level, you know, to understand that what I'm going to teach you is just one little step ahead of what you've got now. And that's the scaffolding, making it contingent upon what the student knows, knowing what's just next of that, and bringing the student along to that next step so that every step proceeds stepwise in that that fashion, like these tiny, you know, baby steps along a path to learning. And I've is seen- it if if I could just jump in there because this 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 seems to be the crux of the matter for me. Yeah. Is it then safe to say that the mentor slash teacher, whatever term you want to use, is is reducing trial and error for the learner? Yeah, I I mean I I definitely think that's part of it because you know you can trial and error. I mean takes a lot of time, and if you're just uh, if a student's blindly trying things, and, and, and I've done this myself, you know, where you where you have this sense that what you're doing isn't working, you know, the wire is sputtering, or um, you're getting, you know what porosity in a weld looks like, and you're getting it. You know, how do you fix the problem that's going on? That that sort of diagnosis of, of, of a problem in the environment requires a certain amount of expertise. So you can start blindly, like depending on the type of welding you're doing, like changing the voltage or more likely fiddling with the amperage, trying to figure out like, oh, is the electrode too far away from the from the base material? There's all sorts of things you can try, but then you have to you have to sort of keep track of like, well, I tried this combination, I tried this combination. And that's certainly at least one thing that teachers do is they look at it, they can look 
They can look at your result. They can look at what you're doing. They can observe you. And then they can say, okay, this is the problem, <laughs> you know? And so the tr- they can cut short that kind of trial and error, which requires you to kind of track what you've tried, which is difficult, you know, on the job or in, in a classroom. And um, they can guide you toward the exact solution for your problem. Like, let's say you're arc length, the distance between your stick electrode and your base material is too long. You're, you're long arcing it, as they say. You know, the teacher can see that. And that's the very kind of thing, your, your question about trial and error, that's really, that's, that's super on point. I mean, this just happened to me last week in the shop that I now work at, um, you know, where I was welding these fence poles to base metal. And the, my my boss, my mentor, uh, Jim Howe, he said, well, let me watch you. Let me watch you do it because you're getting undercut. So let's see what you're doing to cause that, you know, and that really helped. Uh, he told me like, well, you know, you think that you're keeping the electrode right in the joint. You think it's really close. And you're right. It is really close. But if you pay really close attention, you'll see that you do move it. You know, you move it a little bit. And every time you pull it out of the joint, even just a millimeter or two, that's long arcing. And that's causing a problem of undercut. Um, It's a a defect in a weld where the base material kind of overhangs over the weld and it, it causes um, a lack of strength. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that. I mean, I could keep try trying different things and getting perhaps the same problem, perhaps a different problem. And when you don't have expertise, trial and error it, it might work eventually, but it sure does waste a lot of time and it's not efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, so it's, it's increasing the efficiency of the learning yeah. process. It's, it's a way of, uh, so reducing the trial and error is a way of speeding things up. What, what about this flip side to it? If, if you increase as the teacher slash mentor, yeah. if you increase the complexity of the task, because as you were describing, you've got as the teacher the ability to step the students just outside of their area mm-hmm. of comfortable, normal um, activity at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Or if we're in a knowledge-based sort of activity, then what it is that they know and don't know. They, they, they cross just over that line. And it would seem to me that not only are you able then as a teacher to speed things up, but you're also able there to provide a sort of complexity mm-hmm. that is to provide more factors that are involved in what the student is attempting to know or do. I mean, we're, ha- we're trying to speak in the most general terms right, here. Right. I mean, all in all, I would say it's like you're increasing their capability for precision. You're improving quality. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's, we, I mean, I think this applies to teachers of all sorts, teachers of writing as well, and, and teachers of, uh, of welding too. You know, we think about we think about this sort of scaffolding when we're planning a syllabus, you know, one thing precedes the other and it kind of builds on each thing. And, and welding teachers, good ones at least, think about this as well. You know, they think about it at a micro level for one specific um, type of weld. Like, let's say we're going to work on horizontal welds. Well, first we're going to just do a a lap joint, you know, that's easier say than a T joint. And that's certainly more easy than an open groove joint. Um, They're all horizontal, but at a micro level, we're scaffolding different types of joints of different difficulty levels. And then on a macro level, we think about that sort of scaffolding across the whole, the entire course, where maybe students start with Um, just doing flat welds and then they do horizontal ones and then they try to do vertical ones. And then at the end, they do overhead welds. At the beginning, you could never imagine that you could do something above your head and and weld uh, weld a joint above your head. But because the, the class has scaffolded you along and the teacher has scaffolded you along in a stepwise fashion, by the end, you're doing something that is, you know, way 
way more difficult than, than the thing at the beginning. So yeah, we do it in two ways at the micro and the, and the macro level. Yeah, this 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 mention that you make of a syllabus or sort of a course program is is another thing that I, I got thinking about because it comes out very clearly, just as you've uh, uh, portrayed for us, that in welding there's a sort of steady advancement. Um, it makes sense to go from the one sort of welding or the one set of tools to the next and to the next. You're not going to start at overhead welding, for example, right? I mean, this just doesn't make sense. And, and it got me thinking about again, back to our area of, of, of writing rhetoric and composition. Um, sure, we have syllabuses and so on. Um, but I, I wonder at times if I don't also observe a sort of lack of such progression, which then hinders the ability for teachers to intervene in very effective ways. Because you show in the book that, you know, to scaffold is to sometimes refer to previous knowledge or to give one of the pumping questions you talk about. Yeah. Do you see how bright that is? Is to make, you know, a reference to what it is that you know the student must know. And I find that in writing, sometimes it would appear that we either maybe the skill lacks such a progression, although I wouldn't argue that, or we seem to have lack in our approach a building upward mm. oh in in writing classes like trying to figure out how do we move you know what are we starting at is, is that kind of what you're getting at like yeah this- i mean so I, I guess like what is the overheld overhead welding of writing <laughs> and what is the and you know what what are the what are the sort of as you gave you gave us a syllabus in one of the chapters you know what is what are the safety and health measures in writing which is where welding courses tend to start i mean um is that something that you have in your mind or is that something that you would see being practiced well i think i mean if i if i'm understanding you correctly or i I don't know maybe i'm taking this in a different direction but i think this is just one of the challenges of teaching you know more than one person at a time it's like try and and it's the beauty of one-to-one interactions like in a writing center or in a welding class where the where the teacher is moving around the lab from booth to booth, working one-on-one with students. Because that sort of targeted diagnosis can go on, um, the teacher is more ready or more, uh, has a greater capability of targeting like what level you're at to what is the next set, that zone of proximal development, you know, that um, so many people have written about, that Vygotsky wrote about. Um, it's more, I think it's more possible in these one, one-to-one interactions. But yeah, I mean, when you're teaching a, write, a, a class, a writing class or a welding class, everybody together, I mean, that's the big challenge, right? You have all these individuals with different, uh, different, ex- uh, different worlds of experiences that they bring to the course, uh, different uh, levels of knowledge. And so that... Um, th- you you have to try to figure out, okay, what is the level that I'm going to approach this whole group, you know, where it's possible for those who are farther behind to get themselves to that level, not make it, not make it super boring for people who are already ahead. And, and that sort of challenge is one that I saw firsthand in my own um, welding programs. Like when I first started and I was in what you were, what you referred to this safety, this first semester you spend in like learning about different tools and about the lab. And then there's a safety course. There's different sort of basics you learn before you even get to pick up a a welding torch or a gun. And, you know, I had the, the really, I had a a sense, or I think a pretty clear sense that the men in the class, the others in the class knew more than I did, you know, that they had been in, even if they hadn't welded before, which many of them had at least like say on the farm or many had worked in like auto body shops. Some had been in the military. So they had familiarity with tools and with just the, the environment that I didn't have. Everything was new to me. So when the teachers was addressing us all as a group, to me, it kind of seemed like, well, you're not really explaining this very well, but I also understood that like, he's not backing this up. He's not backing this up for me because they're at a certain level. He's assuming a certain level. And I think in writing and welding, 
in everything. I mean, that's one of the one of the challenges. Heck, it's you know we have prerequisites for courses, right? Because we're assuming a certain level of knowledge. We have to be able to assume it. And um, in a class like the one I started with, and you know, it happens to students in writing classes all the time. They're just not at a certain level, and that's why you know, one-to-one interaction, say, in a writing center, or if a student goes and talks to the teacher, you know, and gets help one-on-one, that's why those targeted interactions really help. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you've opened up in your your answer uh, so much, and and we're very much following along uh, what I was asking, uh, rather unclearly. I mean, you took it from the uh, learner's perspective, which which is the perspective that matters, and is the perspective that that is the focus of your book. I I suppose I was also thinking whether or not from the practice or the subject matter itself. So if we took text as the subject matter of uh, composition, um, maybe thought, I don't know uh, whatever what is our subject matter, uh, but in welding the practice is clearly you know the, the weld itself and and I mean there's uh, let's say abstracted from the learner maybe this is also not a useful thought experiment but I'll just I've started so I'll, I'll bring it to an end <laughs> abstracted from the learner the idea that you know you're not going to do an open root a horizontal open root weld before you do another one you're not going to do an overhead one before you do you know, the, the horizontal ones and so on like that. And I, it, it just got me to thinking that um, it would appear that in skilled trades, you have uh, wonderfully some of these sort of physical realities to fall back on. And I was trying to find the, their counterparts in, in text to just come back to the most general word I can think of for, you know, rhetoric and composition. Um, I, th- I think there would be an argument for that, that you could, you know, you could say that, you know, you're not going to have a, a sentence um, with however before you understand sentences with but. You're not going to you're not going to have um, you know three paragraph developments of one thought before you have a single paragraph development of a single thought, and so on. I, uh, or, or is this uh, crazy thinking? No, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I don't know how much. I've studied this really, but I don't know if it's really that super important. Like what I think what you're saying is there might be something to, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would agree that an analysis of texts that are, um, you know, quality writing, let's analyze them. I mean, I think this is something we do in a lot of writing classes. Like here's a good example. Here's a bad example. Let's look at what the good example is doing, you know? So that's the same way we might analyze like, okay, we're going to observe the teacher doing a, laying a weld, you know, this is a good example of how you should do it. Um, and I, I talk a little bit in the book too, about how, you know, you can, show negative demonstrations like, okay, this is how you, how you don't do it. Here's what causes problems, you know? So I think in the, in terms of the writing class, yeah, we can think about that as like, yeah, analysis and really looking at what are, what are the, 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 the features of a quality text, whatever, you know, sort of context we're talking about, you know, whether it's a, Mm. you know, a a letter or a memo or, you know, a proposal or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of the things that comes up in this connection in in the book, uh, and this brings us back uh, to some of the more uh, specifics of, of scaffolding, you talk, for instance, about demonstrations, where then uh, the teacher, him or herself will, you know, just do the weld. Um, And one of the interesting questions that comes up and that in that connection is the is the timing of things. So there is a just in time demonstration, and then there is the so called front loaded one. The just in time is you know it's demonstrated, and then it's performed by the learners. The front loaded yeah, is it's demonstrated at some point, and then you've I got think, yeah. A, I'm sorry, I a delay laugh. of some sort. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, it, I, and, and I suppose just 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 to sort of wrap up the the question there is. It, this 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 again got me. I, I'm sorry if I refer a lot to writing, but I, it's certainly not a foreign discipline to you. <laughs> this got me also thinking about um, writing as something that perhaps could be demonstrated. Um, I wonder of the value of, let's say, on a you know projector, a, t- a teacher or a student working out a paragraph and everyone as patiently as possible <laughs> observing the writing process. I mean, the process of writing is something that's 
always talked about and never watched. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, I've thought about this a lot in my own teaching of writing and teaching of editing as well. In fact, I've done that. I've, I've not done it in writing. I love that idea. I don't know why I haven't. I guess maybe because I, I haven't taught like real beginning writers for a while. But in my editing classes, I've done that very thing. Like, okay, here's me attacking a paragraph, you know, like, I'm trying to edit this 100 words down to 50 words. So what do I look for first? Well, I'm kind of like, reading it over looking to see if there's a bunch of nominalizations, a bunch of use of the verb be in whatever form that might be. Um, I'm looking to see if there's a, a, a lot of um, uh, der- uh, derivational suffixes like shun and meant. Um, I'm looking to see adjectives and adverbs, you know, which might, which are probably going to go first if I have to cut something down in in half. So that process, I think is, it makes a lot of sense to model that sort of process and do that, you know, um, think aloud protocol in, in usability terms, you know, where you're just thinking out loud about as you go along, what, what your thought process is like. And that is something else that I think is is really interesting to study, and it it's I think it's going to be part of the next book I'm writing, but it, it might feature a little bit in this current book. But that's thinking like an expert and to model that thought process. You can certainly do it with writing, like I said, with you know editing too, and you can do it with welding and. It, now that I think about it, it does appear in the book some as like for when one teacher is trying to figure out like, why is this student having a problem with um, the, his wealth? And, you know, the teacher starts telling the student to make these adjustments on the, on the weld machine, on the welding machine. And to to a certain extent, I can't remember exactly the details, but to a certain extent, the teacher is sort of thinking out loud about, okay, maybe we got to like increase the voltage because I'm getting this result, or we got to turn up the amps because I'm getting this result. And so the teacher is trying to find this perfect, you know, balance for the student who's had problems. So the teacher's got the welding gun now and is trying to figure it out. And to the extent that teachers can model that thought process of trying to, of seeing the results that they're getting, of, uh, of, of, of expertly, and this is part of, you know, expertly perceiving what's in the environment, for, for example, the results of the weld, and then trying to discern what sort of combination of factors are giving us that result. Like, for instance, the voltage or the amperage on the machine. Um yeah, that is super valuable. So I think you've hit on something. You know, I don't know if it's super highlighted in the book, but I think it's really useful. And I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of like this of of, of, of expertise and the thinking process of expertise. And I think that's going to be a chapter of my next book, <laughs> actually. Well, I do, uh, I do hope so, because yeah. your book, uh, uh, this book here, Welding uh-huh. Technical Communication, certainly... Um, runs that as a motif through so much of what you report on. I, I, I mean, one that one moment that sticks in my in mind and is also highlighted again in the conclusion is um, I think it was Tom, or, uh, who is one of the um, welding instructors, who talks about having uh, to get his brain wired to the point where it's possible for him to weld and talk about welding simultaneously, and this is pretty much what we're talking about. And it, and it got me thinking, I, I've done similar sort of exercises to what you've just said, uh, you know, think of, of protocols, editing and, and writing um, in front of a class. And it got me thinking about, you know, the effectiveness of that. And, uh, and if we didn't want perhaps to try modeling, you know, a writing center or writing instruction on your uh, welding lab, you know, having having booths with computers instead of welding gear, <laughs> having a structure make the rounds. Um, another thing that comes up, which I'll just sort of tag on to this thought, is uh, the issue of time constraints, which 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 followed uh, this setup in the lab, where you've got one instructor and you've got 
I don't know how many uh, uh, students uh, of oh, welding. Yeah, somewhere and- between like, oh, I don't know, usually around 14, 15, as many as 18. That's a good, that's a good yeah. number. Yeah. But it, the interesting thing was that it was a mixed uh, skill level group. So it wasn't all from one course. So these uh, the teacher needed yeah. to be quite flexible in that regard. But, I, it, the, but the time constraints, always the, again and again, I found myself getting annoyed by the fact that, well, why aren't we investing more so that there's three teachers there at the welding or at the writing center? Because, you know, th- this like really matters, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. I, I love that idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, just one thing first with, the, you know, back to problem solving. I think, yeah, I think when, the, the, to me, like, I, I think we, I want to make a, a distinction between, like, a, a teacher intervening in, a, in, in with a student, uh, you know, with diagnosis, with, um, and then, and in that case, like with t- with the teacher, like trying to figure out the amps and the volts, why the student's not getting a good result. Yeah, I think that's a case of like problem solving. There's a problem. There's not always a problem, like in, in the learning environment. You know, sometimes teachers intervene and there's not a problem to solve. And I think it would be it would be interesting to study welders, other skilled tradespeople you know, as they encounter problems and how do experts diagnose problems and tr- and try to figure out what's going on. And I've seen that happening at the shop that I work at now with uh, uh, the owner, uh, Jim Howe, who's been, who's owned this shop for 36 years. And he has this just immense wealth of knowledge about every process of welding about machining as well fabrication and so to watch him to to listen to him think out loud um uh, as he's trying to figure something out it's just fascinating and to me you know at this shop i'm still a student i'm still learning and, and he'll even give me like little challenges like Okay, how would you create a jig for or a fixture for this this weld weldment that we're going to create? You know, we're going to have to do 40 of them, so we're going to create something that will hold the pieces of metal in place so that we can do it, you know, efficiently. How would you create the jig, Joe? And to me, like I'm trying to, I I was, you know, thinking out loud about what it might look like. I even drew it for him, and then he showed me what he would do and explained it to me and his thought process. And I just think that sort of problem solving out loud, like you mentioned, is hugely valuable. And then as, as far as time constraints, you know, why don't we have like more teachers? Well, I mean, the, the you know, money, <laughs> that's what it all comes down to, right? Because it certainly would be great. I mean, obviously, the benefit of having more teachers in a writing classroom or in a welding classroom is that people are getting that one-on-one targeted, um, con- you know, contingent intervention in their learning. It's it's based on their current uh, level of knowledge a, a person has diagnosed that individual's level and then is scaffolding that one step up within the zone of proximal development. And I think, um, yeah, so that kind of gets at, you know, why wouldn't it be great to have more teachers or more tutors? Yeah, 100%. And that's why I give it out <laughs> yeah, I mean, centers. <laughs> Because at least they I su- yeah, I'm, yeah they- I suppose I'm playing the, playing the small the, the 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 smallest violin in the world when I say we need more teachers. Well, <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, it, I'm with you. It, it is one of those things. It, yeah, I, I I mean, I didn't expect any less. Uh, but I, I I still feel like I'm not just saying oh, we need more teachers. I guess what I'm trying to say is look at how important this is, and let's let's reconsider our priorities. I mean, even if we had the same money. Let's reconsider our priorities because this sort of thing matters. And because the contingency is a perfect example that you just bring up from from scaffolding. It is a method that demands that the subject matter take a backseat to the learner. It is a method where, you know, you're at uh, as a teacher, you're you're in the fine sort of not fine. You're in the difficult position of trying to basically weigh up three 
central things. You're, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is it that the uh, learner, him or herself, actually knows? How is it that I um, am? How am I able to um, demonstrate my proficiency of it? And then thirdly, what is, let's say, the theoretical base of that proficiency? In other words, how can I explain how I've just done it? Because there's a, you know, a huge division between just being able to do it and like and your current boss uh, or super. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that, and, and, and this is. This is one of your, um, you know, uh, wishes that comes out of the book and, and is emphasized in the um, in the conclusion that 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 in sh- uh, uh, teacher training recognize that and people be able to like Tom mm-hmm. learn how to do that better. Yeah, to be able to, uh, I mean, not simply like to be able to talk while you're welding, which I think is hard enough anyway, but to be able to think about, okay, you know, how am I explaining this? What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what's going on in this moment? How am I? And and I talk about this in the conclusion, the importance of describing so that the student kind of gets insight that words appropriate into like how the expert the teacher is perceiving you know you need to be able to to figure out what is the most important thing in this environment right now uh the word is highlight you got to highlight you know what is essential what is relevant and that can be sight that could be sound that could be you know a, a feeling um and and the teacher has to i mean has to be able, in this case, to to weld, to to perform the task, and then to be able to make those uh, items in the environment salient. To to be able to think about what are the 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 most important items to highlight in the environment right now. See how I'm doing this. Do you hear that that crackle sound? That's the sound that we want. Um, and I think that's really, as Tom said, you know, it's it's difficult to do. Uh, it's difficult just to talk and to do something at the same time, um, probably at first. But it's it's also, I mean, I think teacher training needs to help teachers understand what are the sort of items that we want to highlight first. How do we want to explain them or code them? Um, for for students, what are the best ways to do that? What what is research found about highlighting and then explaining those those features of a good weld or perhaps a bad weld if you're if you're showing them like what not to do, right? Um, yeah, I think that's something that welding teachers and skilled trade teachers. Um, I think training could could go a little bit farther in those areas in, 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 in showing instructors of giving them some pedagogical techniques for things that they might be doing. And unconsciously, you know, maybe what they're doing, they've kind of stumbled into this, but it would be great. I think for teachers to really understand, Oh, there are pedagogical methods for this. I can think consciously about what it is I'm highlighting how I'm explaining it and how one thing builds on the other to scaffold students across a, a process or a course. Yeah. I think, well, I mean, yeah, I mean that the teacher, the teacher, him or herself is, is always then still a learner, aren't they? Because uh, as we were saying earlier, you want to reduce their trial and error uh, period and you also want to increase their precision. So, I mean, you had in this course uh, the the welding teachers and welding instructors that you observed certainly you know talented people who were good um uh, tom again comes to mind i think he even said that he just enjoys the teaching bit um but all of them demonstrated you know the scaffolding that you were after and yet i'm sure very few of them were told which i found really helpful the names for things you know highlight what is it code why is it that way yeah. I mean, these sorts of terminologies and then practicing them a bit, uh, you know, can, it, as, I, as I was always saying, increase your precision in teaching. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that there are some instructors of skilled trades or probably just anywhere who, you know, 
start yeah like you were saying you know they they figure out by trial and error over a long haul not very efficient what works and you got to remember too that a lot of teachers in vocational schools or cte programs uh community colleges in these skilled trades i mean these are folks who don't they don't necessarily have a degree in education you know they're they were welders (laughs) or or they you know they were um uh, they, they were, you know, auto mechanics or, or, or whatever it was. And so they become teachers. They're interested in that. They don't necessarily, you know, it's the same thing. I'm not trying to disparage these folks by any means because it's the same thing at a university, you know, just because you have a, a PhD in applied linguistics doesn't mean that you know how to teach applied linguistics, right? None of us get all that much training in teaching. So it's the same thing that happens at universities that happens in community colleges and elsewhere. People who know the subject matter are teaching it, but nobody's really taught them about learning, you know, about how learning works. You've, you've just, you've just, you've just summarized one book that I did an interview on about a year back by Jonathan Zimmerman, yeah. the, um, the amateur hour, a history of college teaching in America. Oh my God. And precisely that's what, <laughs> and precisely that's what he proves uh, through going through archive after archive is, is how, uh, as he says, the amateur hour. I mean, yeah. a lot of us just don't know what we're doing. And no. some of us just 100%. happened, to, just happened to be a bit better at it than others and all of us are trying to do our best and yeah. most of all of us i mean we can't say all of us anywhere but i mean this is stumbling about i mean certainly at the beginning you are i you know there's i think now there's there's more resources there are more resources for college professors you know like at iowa state there's a center for teaching and learning you know so there are places where you can go to become a better teacher but no Nobody's making you do it, <laughs> you know. It's a, it's it's something you have to do because you're motivated to become a better teacher. And then you know, so who's motivated to become a better teacher? Well, people who have tenure, who have more time to do it, and people who are probably better teachers in the first place because they're actually motivated to do it. So you know. Yeah, the, the university system system is 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 really weird in this way. Um, and and who else might be a, a good teacher at the beginning in a university? You know, somebody who's had good models. And certainly, we've all had our share of good and bad. And you know, hopefully, you're you're imitating uh, what you think was good, but what you think was good might not have been all that efficacious. <laughs> so it's you know, it was maybe it, it maybe worked for you. But that doesn't mean it's working for everybody. So yeah, I this book by what'd you say Zimmerman? It yeah, that's um, uh, uh, yes, that's Jonathan really Zimmerman of the yeah. Amateur Hour. Yeah, I think that they. But I mean, that's really that's on something. Yeah, 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 and that's what scaffolded teaching really brings out for me. This is um, for me one of the major takeaways from your book that you know um, again because you know the subject matter doesn't automatically make you into a good teacher. I think we've established that much. But they, but this, but the second thing is is that it requires a refocus. It requires, as I saw that I said earlier, that major challenge of you know combining a good awareness of the learner's current knowledge. Uh, combining a good awareness of your own proficiency and then of course being proficient i mean you have to be juggling all those things um and when you intervene as you say um for instance one of your welding instructors ted talks about how some people got to read it some people got to see it some people got to hear it you know what 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 he's expressing in in that quote is this idea that you have to know how, in your terminology, to increase or reduce the degrees of freedom an individual in an individual learner is is you know capable of having in that moment. Yeah, yeah, I think there are two things there. Like he's talking about, you know, all the different sorts of learning that go on, and you know, giving students. Um, a whole field of resources. You know, there's your textbook. We've got videos. I'm going to show you how to do this weld. We're going to have like a, uh, I talk about how the teachers might sometimes like gather a group of of students together and do one demonstration. Um, So there's all these different ways. And then like one-on-one, I might do it for you again, show you how to do it. I'm going to watch you do it. And I'm going to like coach you as 
you're doing it. All of these are different types of, um, yeah, different types of resources that um, students can possibly uh, draw upon. Um, oh, shoot. And I forgot the second half of, of what you were talking about. I only got to the, the different resources. Um, uh, well, that, uh, that I, I've got to follow up to that and probably re- remind you while you're speaking, I'm sure these <laughs> this totally happens. Um, one of the things that stuck out at me stuck out for me uh, for sure in in the area of scaffolded teaching was intersubjectivity. And this ties in, I would say very much with what you were just saying about expert perception. You know, how is it that we can uh, have an expert conv- sort of convey what it is that they're seeing, hearing, or whatever it might be, yeah, that matters. And it really got me to thinking again about writing, um, which is what I always bring things back to. You know, I mean, you can you can very much imagine seeing the writing, yeah? I mean, you, you, you analyze the sentence, you move things around. Of course, you would very much imagine that you would want to be able to hear the writing, although this is something that I find does get neglected, especially in scientific communication. I mean, for instance, you say the sound of a weld is an important indicator of weld quality. Well, I mean, I would replace in that sentence the word sentence. <laughs> the sound of a sentence is an important indicator of sentence quality. I mean, what, shouldn't we be teaching biologists Shakespeare and <laughs> and other good-sounding English so that they hear what's what's possible? Um, and and another one that came up to my mind uh, was 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 the feel. Because you also go into the other senses in welding, which is perhaps more obvious than in writing. But I thought of the feel of writing because there is a physicality to the act of reading and writing, which, which again, I find gets neglected. I mean, it has its own embodied aspect as well, doesn't it? 100%. Yeah. There's a little bit of research or at least like, you know, scholarly commentary on this. Um, yeah. People talking about... Um, the importance of, yeah, like using a pen, the physicality of it. Um, you were talking about hearing texts read aloud. I think we, we think about that in writing centers when tutors read aloud students' work and then stop and say like, you know, can you, can you hear like, you know, something odd in there? Um, students reading their work aloud too. There's, you know, even been a tiny bit of research on whether it's better for the tutor to read aloud or the student to read aloud. So I definitely think there is something to that, that idea of multiple modes of perception, not just using, you know, like, you know, your, your sight your, your, to read, but also like hearing it. And then in writing, the, the, the feeling of it too. Yeah, I think there is something there that people have been, I guess, you know, sort of talking about in, in, in years past, but definitely in terms of an embodied subject like welding or in, in the trades, you know, there, it's not just about like seeing the weld or so, the other senses really come to the forefront, this idea of hearing the weld, of um, touch, of and, and feel like to be able to welding teachers talk a lot about feeling comfortable. And the idea is that like, you need to know what it's like to feel comfortable or to, to feel uncomfortable because when you're, when you're thinking about what your weld is going to be and um, you've done a dry run through it, like you've, you've, you've not like struck the electrode, but you've struck the arc, but you've, um, you've moved your hand along the path of the weld and you're thinking about, okay, I want to start in the most uncomfortable position and move towards comfort. And I think that in order to do that, you need to know what comfort feels like. So there are examples in the book where the teacher is trying to get the student to, to understand like, okay, where does that feel uncomfortable? You need to, attuned to your body. And I think that's something, I mean, there's been plenty written about how we are all kind of, you know, we, we become tuned out. Um, and I think something that's embodied, like welding, really brings that to the forefront. Like, I need to understand what my body feels like in a moment 
when I'm doing this task because I want to be able to complete the task well. And part of that means moving towards comfort. Um, and then, of course, yeah, and, th- and this is this yeah. is and this is also what I mean, though, with writing. I mean, you 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 do mention, you did mention just now that there is you know a small body of of work there, but I don't even just mean the physical act of you know typing out on the keys and so on, but. But comfort is a good word. It would be a key word for me. I mean, it's a long haul to put together, you know, a twenty-page paper, um, and there's. It's worth considering. Okay, so how am I going to do this? You know, what are the hours I'm going to put into it, and how am I going to conduct myself? And and is it you know a matter of uh, staying up twenty-four hours and drinking coffee all the time? Or is it, you know, combined with uh, sport and and breathing techniques and and other such activities that show I'm I'm respecting the writing. I know that I need weeks to finish this, so it's an activity that goes next to the rest of my health. Oh, one hundred percent. I love what you're saying there. I I, I talk about this uh, a fair bit with students in our program Um, because you know I'm supposed to be sort of a expert on writing so they come to me for like advice with the writing process you know and uh, and I tell them like yeah you've got to think about it and it's you're you're making me think about it in terms of comfort and I like this is great like yeah like what how do I get through the writing process so that it's it's most comfortable and you can kind of make this analogy to like, okay, well, for me, that means starting at the most uncomfortable. The most uncomfortable for me is not, is having like, is is the first draft of something when I'm actually got to like write the words, you know? And so for me, that works best in the morning, like between seven and eight o'clock. So I'm going to do the most uncomfortable thing first. And then if I'm thinking about like my overall comfort level with this writing process, this task I have to do, well, you know, my, in the, in the hours when I like have least mental capacity, those are the hours I'm going to like work on the reference list, you know, or I'm going to like, um, do like a proofreading of something I've already written, you know, where I don't have to do like the, the really, for me, the real heavy mental process. So absolutely. And you're talking about it like longitudinally over weeks, you know, okay. So I got to think about how else am I going to like take care of myself uh, while I'm writing this dissertation, I'm going to make sure I go to the gym, you know, like for an hour a day or something like that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you can map it to this. I- that's interesting to this idea of comfort or, or discomfort. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's what I got thinking of while while I was uh, imagining people welding around pipes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I started thinking, okay, yeah, well, that's about the same. I mean, obviously, when I was a student, I did a lot of things that young people do and drank too much coffee and and stayed up all night. But I mean, that's not a sustainable method, and it's also not recognizing what the as I was saying before, what the writing actually is. This brings us uh, to one other last uh, one of the last points that I definitely like to uh, bring up in our interview is is about motivation and learning, which has its own chapter in your book. And I find um, you know it's 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 hard to sort of overemphasize the topic of student motivation. I mean, it's it to me. Seems to be just about everything in learning. I mean, for example, you're finding that motivation would be increased by information on the common uses of various weld joints and various weld positions. I found an interesting point because to to make the analogy, which I've been making the entire interview to to a writing course, the writing course that starts at adjectives and nouns instead of at say qualities and entities is is doing much the same thing. The the learner is lacking that, you know, connection to what it is that is, is going to happen or really matters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I I think you're hitting upon something really important here is it's, it's, we've got to show students that what they're doing is relevant. Um, And I think, you know, one thing that I found, I would have liked more in my classes that I write about is that sort of application like where am I going to see this happen um where am I going to use this type of joint or what are certain um you know sub assemblies that this would occur on um I wanted I wanted more of that and I think students in writing classes want that too like 
how am I going to use this? Where am I going to use this? And that's why we try so hard, you know, to show them that, okay, we're writing proposals because, you know, this is a type of genre that you're going to use out, you know, in in different workplaces or wherever you are, you know, proposing a, a grant proposal or something like that. We try to make it relevant. And that increases that, we hope, that internal sort of motivation to learn, you know, it creates uh, relevance for students. Um, yeah. So, you know, for me, in that was one thing I, I thought like, yeah, I, I wanted to see more of it because in the, in the, in the welding program that I was in and, and most of the ones I visited, we were learning different weld positions. We were le- learning different weld processes. Um, but it wasn't so often, and again, this is time constraints too, where you would get to really create something, to make something. Um, and I just thought like the programs could benefit from a little bit more of that. And I think we, you know, we... We try to do that in writing classes to create things that, um, you know, have relevance to students or, you know, or something that they can use out on, in the world. And maybe we attain that most when we have them do like writing portfolios that they're going to use to when they when they graduate that they can use out in the world. I mean, but sometimes in writing classes or even most of the time, the work that they do, it, it just has to be practice. You know, it, it, it's hard to to tell students, well, you know, it's not something necessarily that you're going to be able to show to a boss or whatever, or that you'd want to, but it's practice. You know, you've got to put in the time, you've got to write in order to be able to do it even better later on. And I guess that's probably what the welding instructors would tell me too, is, you know, this is practice. And when you're, when you've graduated, which I have now as of May, congratulations, thank you very much. (laughs) um, Then, you know, you, yeah, then you're, you are going to apply it and we can't, you know, we don't have time to be going through all of the different applications of all of these things. And, and, you know, I, I get it. I mean, there's a, there's a point to that. Um, certainly. I think though, what, what else uh, comes up in, in that chapter on student motivation that, that even, in a practice scenario where perhaps week after week you're just going over the one weld or the one sort of um, genre in in student writing, um, one one way of maintaining uh, student motivation there comes out very strongly in the book where you talk about skill being an art. And I would say that you're able to practice better when you have an appreciation of what it is that you're doing as an art. I, I, I would like to just quote quickly Tom, who y- you quote yeah, yeah. <laughs> on this exact same topic, um, where he, he, he says that a lot of people will say that welding, I'm quoting now, is a skill. And then the analogy I use is it's more of an art form. Like when you look at the little intricacies and sort of how that skill develops, and then it's, you know, referring to famous artists and you know it, they didn't learn that in 6 months is what he says and i find that that is one of those things to increase enthusiasm to ah. in, to increase the level of appreciation also maintains motivation through periods of practice i would say oh yeah i think that's true i think tom i love tom's idea there of you know you know you need to put in a certain number of hours in order to be to to have your mind and your body work as one in this technique you know you need to like become the technique people write about like that flow state right and that doesn't just happen your body has to do it over and over and over again for you to become an artist or in in the terms I use in the book, like an expert. And that just, you know, what he doesn't say is that continues on, right? These hours that you spend in a welding program or in a writing program, these are all just building up your practice hours, building up your technique, and you keep continuing on in, in towards, I don't know if there's a, tr- you know, like true expertise, but I think I've seen people who really come close, who people, you know, like people like my boss at the, at the shop where, you know, he can, he perceives 
everything like going on in, in, in an environment, in a problem and is able with all of that experience and that you can't fake, right? I mean, you just have to put in the time, years of experience and you draw upon all the events that have happened in his past, draw upon, and we haven't really even talked about this, like conceptual knowledge that he has versus procedural knowledge, his ability to do all of that. You're gaining some of, you know, whether the procedural knowledge that comes over time, you can't fake it. You have to put in the hours. Now, some people are probably just more or less talented than others, you know? So those people get lucky, you know, if, if you're more talented, you might have to put in fewer hours, but you're still going to be putting in hours. And all of the experiences you have that come over years of encounters with different problems, with different situations, that that just comes through years, you know, it comes through minutes on the job and there's no, there's no, yeah, way this is that, that wonderful quotation that you have in the book. I, I forget, unfortunately who the scholar was, but an expert is bred and not born. Yeah, um, so 100%. you yeah. may yeah. have a head start, but you've still got the same road to go. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. What, yeah. It's one, one, one of the, one of the closing things I certainly wanted to comment on and, and, and this, uh, uh, really fascinating book for anyone who's interested in education is, uh, the form of it. It's loaded with photos. Um, because of course, a lot of nonverbal communication needs to be illustrated. Um, it's, auto-ethnographic, uh, which means we get to find out a fair amount about you and your experience, but then you step back into your scientist's perspective and become a discourse analyst again of text and gesture. Um, I, I, one thing that occurred to my mind was, was it ever an option to use video? Ah, well, I, I did. I mean, all of those interactions are video recorded. Um, so it would be possible. Um, I mean, if it, if it could be worked out with the publisher and the participants, um, to put those videos, you know, online or make them available, the, uh, what I, 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 we pixelated the, the, the participants because we told them that they would be anonymous. So the photos make that obviously easier if you're doing it in a video I, I i'm guessing it's pop and i'm certain it's possible i i would have to like figure out how to do it or somebody would so that's yeah they're all videotaped mm -hmm. yeah no i just meant as a resource for the um, um because the photos are yeah. certainly great but no, fantastic would of course be to see uh, the video I, I knew you were videotaping as you as you explained yeah, yeah. um it, but uh, yeah, that's it, it kills uh, me because that's exactly that's the first thing that my um my best friend and uh co-author isabel thompson she read a, an early draft of the book actually several <laughs> and uh yeah she said that too like it sure would be great if we could have videos you know like yeah i hear you <laughs> i don't know well that's i suppose a small message out to the publisher <laughs> yeah yeah it would be it would be great if if somebody could could do that cuz i would love to to share them i think yeah you're spot on like when we're when we're talking about gestures like uh, you know like pointing or these metaphoric gestures and yeah, it's helpful to see them because it was very, it was difficult to find the exact moment um, to capture, you know, to try to illustrate a gesture that has, that, 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 that moves over time. Yeah, that was hard. Well, thank you very much for that, Joe. That is uh, Joe Makowitz, and her book, Welding Technical Communication, is out with SUNY Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Joe. Goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you so much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.